So we never had the freedom in Zimbabwe at the time to actually write a different story because it would always be contested. It would always be be contested. And um, yeah, I've always felt the violence of that. I really felt the violence of that. But also the politics of, of memory, you know, like uh, who gets forgotten. I think for me, that was that's another really painful thing because like we know that people have died during this time and we're just going to just forget all of those debts and there's no way you can build a just and moral society on the back of forgetting. I don't think you can do that, you know. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, you're listening to the bonus episode of season one of the ICA podcast. And in this final episode of the season, we have something quite different for you. Previous interviews have focused on artists and curators, but today's episode is the profile of a writer, the Harare-born, Cape Town-based writer Bongani Kona. Kona was shortlisted for the Kane Prize for African Writing in 2016, and his essays and short stories have appeared in a host of publications and anthologies, like the Johannesburg Review of Books, Safe House, The Baffler, also on BBC Radio 4, and in the Pan-African publication Chimarenga, where he's a contributing editor. The memories of violence that live in the body and how do those, how do you unlearn those? I recognize the importance of it because living disconnected from the body is is definitely not a good thing. But I actually don't know like what the pathway to to healing that is. Um, I have no, no idea. It's a, um, I don't know. Maybe that will only be possible once we live in a free country or uh, get to know freedom. I'm not sure. This episode is about the history of Zimbabwe as Kona lived it, about leaving for South Africa and living in Cape Town. But what got us onto these themes of home and belonging was a walk through Cape Town's public park, the company's garden, to visit a war memorial, which was the site of a public performance that Corner saw by chance 10 years ago. Uh, overcast sky is a bit chilly, but not too cold. And winter in Cape Town, right? That's where, yeah, that's where we are. That's the scene. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why I I like company gardens for one is that it's a public space and we don't have many of those actually like public spaces which everybody can access but more than that I think the history of Cape Town for me is tied with ideas of beauty like when I first arrived here one of the things you hear consistently people say about Cape Town is how beautiful it is but the kind of violence that has been done in the name of that beauty is you know, some of the most horrific things, as in, you know, forced removals and all sorts of things. And so this idea that beauty can be shared, I think for me, Company Gardens exemplifies that. Um, yeah, there's a possibility of a very different city that I see in Company Gardens. I just love seeing the, the different uh, kinds of animals, the squirrels, the birds, all of the animals. Like, all of us are kind of just, we're either going or coming, but also like, 
in any other spaces in the city that I walk into, I can predict who's going to be sitting there. Like I can almost predict here. I never have that uh, sense because anyone can come through the corner, whether it's school pupils or, you know, somebody sleeping on the street. There could be a photo shoot, a film thing. So like I love that kind of sense of the sheer range of uh, of human beings who live in the city that you come across here. I think is quite extraordinary. The Delwell Wood Memorial, which is the monument that we were busy making our way towards, isn't a name that Cape Tonians would immediately recognise, but it's situated in a busy pedestrian thoroughfare in the company's garden, and on the steps of the South African Museum, and so it's viewed all the time, either intentionally or in passing, by tourists, school groups, and the array of people that make their way through the park each day. It's a circular temple-like structure standing a few meters high with stone pillars and a domed roof and mounted on top of this dome is a bronze sculpture of two men standing alongside a prancing horse with their hands clasped together in unity, a commemoration of the South African soldiers who fought in the world wars. And Bongani and I were visiting the monument to jog memories of the performance that he witnessed unfold around and on top of the memorial in 2010, the public art piece called Imperfections. Here's artist Leila Anderson, who co-created and performed in Imperfections. The two figures on top of the monument are meant to represent the English and the Afrikaners, working together for the common goal of defeating the common enemy. But it, it omitted so many people. So many people of color, so many men, went to fight in the First and Second World War from South Africa. There were black troops who were crucial to England succeeding, who just omitted from all memorializations. Bongani hadn't intended to watch the performance that day, but he was sitting on a bench in the company's garden that overlooks the Delver Wood Memorial and the pond alongside it, when imperfections began. It was it wasn't a really good time in my life at the time. I was going through quite a lot of things, so it was like a it was a warm day. I'm not really sure where I was going, so it was like a an accidental encounter. But I was just I was kind of sitting over there. Then I saw a group of people stationed around here, and I remember just walking towards the performance. And so they started in the pond here, and then they moved all the way up. They climbed up the statue. And then the thing that was moving at the end was that they gave each members of the audience a white stone so that they could lay onto the memorial just to commemorate the people who are not uh, honored by this memorial. And for me, I walk past statues and monuments all the time. I don't really care <laughs> what they're about. So I don't have relationships with those things. They're just kind of objects that you can look at. But it, it imbued the space with meaning and at the time, I was also feeling left out in the city, I guess, outside of the human arrangements of this place. And that idea that there are people who have given their lives to this country, to this place, and they are not recognized. You know, just that acknowledgement of invisibility, how people are written outside of history, and to experience that in public and for free. It was a really, yeah, I think the word I would use for that afternoon, I'd probably say transcendental, yeah? It was, yeah, it was really transcendent, I think, for me. But now I go back to just walking past <laughs> statues again, you know. And it's, it's funny because it's the same thing with uh, the Rhodes statue, in the sense that I know for a lot of people who had studied at UCT, the University of Cape Town, I think they kind of just walked past that statue for years and years, and then this one act imbues that statue with meaning that you have to kind of, you can't ignore, you have to engage with it. 
statues like these can be quite didactic, right? They're saying this is what happened and this is why we have this thing right here. It's so it's so certain and it's so final and just to have that space which is just more fluid so that you can come in and engage with the thing. And you can also reject it as well. Like I like that that it wasn't so so final, so complete. It's quite a way to engage history, I think. And you know, in uh, in in Zimbabwe, in Harare, they have this thing that's called the Hero's Acre, which was built in 1980 after the Liberation War and after independence. So it's the main memorial site in Harare, and everyone who's there is sort of like a hero of the nationalist struggle. And one of the things that starts to happen as as the regime itself becomes more and more a one-party state, as it becomes a, a dictatorship, they start to dictate who gets buried in the hero's acre and who's excluded. So it's, it becomes um, this narcissistic endeavor by the party itself to kind of rewrite its own history, to kind of cement its own place in the history of the country. So that's where that thing for me about setting histories in in stone it can it's, it's a i don't know how good a thing that is you know and who gets to write that history that's gets set in stone as well was politics something that you discussed in your family of course it must have been a backdrop to your lives in a very significant way but was it something that was articulated and discussed in your home very much so. I think maybe, so let me backtrack a little bit. A simplified reading of Zimbabwe's history is that in the 1800s or in the late 1800s, when the white settlers come in, there's what's called the first Chimurenga, which is the first struggle for independence. And then uh, from like the late 60s up until independence in 1980 is the second Chimurenga. That is the, the guerrilla war that ushers in independence. With Mr. Mugabe, rejoicing at the political triumph that now ends their struggle. And Mr. Mugabe himself has driven the ritual prime ministerial drive through the governor's gates. And so when the farm invasions began, Robert Mugabe had called this period the third Chimurenga, as in kind of saying that um, we might have gotten independence, but the revolution itself is not yet finished. We need to go to this final act to kind of possess the land. That Zimbabweans regain ownership of their land as an undisputed matter of social justice. They died in the middle of the third Chumurega, which we must see to the victorious finish. And if you remember that bit of history, is that it started with war veterans or people who were who said they were war veterans going and repossessing land. So again we were in this very charged atmosphere in which rhetoric was flying from all sides. ...fighting to ensure that the people of Zimbabwe regain their political and economic birthrights. So it entered our classrooms, it entered our entire lives, it entered our friendships. And yeah, so from that moment on, politics, politics became everything. And I think, I'm not sure how good it is to have to live in an anxiety where politics doesn't have a frontier where it stops, you know. I'm just going to stop our recording because it's getting a bit more... As the overcast skies of the early morning turned to drizzle and then to rain, we abandoned our outdoor walk to head for the recording studio, where we continued talking about the history of Zimbabwe, and where I asked Bongani to read a few excerpts from his writing. But we began with his upbringing. 
Um, so I was raised in a neighborhood called Hatfield in Harare, Zimbabwe. Uh, it was sort of like a lower middle class neighborhood. But as things got tougher and tougher, I think it just plunged the neighborhood itself. Uh, I grew up with my mother's side of the family. So it was my mom, my grandma, and uh, uncle of mine, Uncle Edwin. There was an aunt as well, Aunt Sheila. That arrangement always kind of shifted because there were always either people coming in to stay for university education or for college education or come to school in, in Harare. So the, the household used to just expand and shrink over the, the years that I was there. The kind of neighborhood I'd grown up in is where the families knew each other from, from way back and the street that I was in, Nirvana Road. There was a lot of kids who were more or less my age, and we all went to the same primary school. We all went to the same creche, and we all went more or less went to the same one or two churches. That kind of environment where we all knew each other, kind of communal upbringing. So it wasn't just the house I was in, it was also the street or the neighborhood itself. And my grandmother had been a primary school teacher, so... She's the one who had taught me how to read. The first serious work of literature that I read was by Dambuzo Marichera, one of the most iconic writers to have emerged from Zimbabwe. He passed away at the age of 35. The book that I got introduced to uh, is Mind Blast. And by then, when he wrote that book, he was living on the streets. He was quite, quite destitute. And he wrote this book in a place that's similar to Company Gardens, but much smaller. He used to just set up his typewriter there and just kind of type. So he wrote this book called Mind Blast, which is a, comprised of plays, poetry, journal extracts. I think they only printed 500 copies. It's a very difficult book to get a hold of. So there was one copy of that in, in our house. And I remember the one night I couldn't sleep and I just kind of took it from the shelf. And I read it the whole night, but the last bit of that book is called The Journal, uh, which is taking like a journal extract from his days in the park. It was astonishing. There's a kind of loneliness that's there, which I th which was like, yeah, it was really, I'd never encountered somebody write so openly and honestly about something so, so difficult, about feeling so alone in the world. Uh, and for me, I think I was always a lonely kind of person, but I didn't, I couldn't name it. But when I read that, there was something that was quite revelatory, like a message in the bottle, you know, that says, we're amongst you or something like that. There are many of us, so yeah. When you read something and you feel understood, it's always a powerful feeling. It's a very, it's a very powerful feeling. So that's what pushed both the reading and the writing. Because now I wanted to, I was searching for that same sense of being understood of, and sometimes of wanting to understand. Your high school, Prince Edward, was government school, but semi-private or boys school. What did you think of school as a kid? What kinds of things held your interest? Uh, high school was was a mad trip. High school was a mad trip because that local primary school, in terms of resources, was not like the high school that I went to. Like it was very, very, very different. There wasn't ideas of prestige were not there, right? And then so I go to this high school, which you know you learn Latin and you learn classics and you play the clarinet. And it was quite a huge, uh, huge culture shock. And I remember just like the sense of anxiety that you, when you come into a place that's filled with so many other kids from affluent homes. 
but uh, I actually learned to love it. Like that's when I started getting an interest in rugby, in athletics. To this day, I'm like a huge sports nut. The things that held my interest were mostly the extracurricular activities, like yeah, athletics and rugby. But in the classroom, I guess I'm forgetting this time. Actually, very fortunate to have had really good English teachers. I remember one teacher called Mr. Nzuma. We used to kind of like we would read the whole text in class bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit, and you know. That kind of slow engagement with the text inculcated my love of reading, I guess. And um, I never really thought about kind of pursuing any career related to writing. But that reading continued when I came to varsity. I was studying film and media. And the second semester of my first year, I ended up working at varsity newspaper. And that changed everything for me because that was the first time entering into like a publishing space writing and publishing and at the time I used to read a ton of newspapers. I remember some really classic pieces, uh, Ungani Madondo's piece on Brenda Farsi, the way that he just, he wrote about situations and circumstances that I could relate to like and it was such a dignified piece and I remember Njabulon is thinking about Brenda. It's astonishing how many people have written about Brenda Farsi. <laughs> Ferrell Hafiji was the editor then at the Mailing Guardian. And I remember a piece of hers called The Dawns of El Dorado, about the gangsters in El Dorado Park in Johannesburg. And then Mark Gavissa, my goodness, man, the Tabombeki biography, to me, still remains like one of the landmark works of what you would call nonfiction in South Africa, just so thorough, so carefully done. At the same time as this is all going on, there's people like... Chimurenga who are publishing there. Also incredible bits of writing, you know. And always the goal had been to be like, I want to contribute to this. So the idea is just to get to even just a little bit <laughs> close. And reading that just charged me with something and you feel like I want to contribute to this. So that's the idea, like just completely fell in love with it, that whole enterprise. For anybody who's made that trip the first time to South Africa, or at least that come from Zimbabwe, for me, I traveled by bus. And the thing for me, which I kind of like, I was astonished by was the filling stations. Um, how, like I knew I was in an ordered place because they weren't, you know, we'd been living through chronic fuel shortages and infrastructure is also kind of dilapidated but like the filling stations that had so much stuff like different brands of chips uh, people were in jobs people were working behind the till and there's stuff in the till like it's it's hard to kind of comprehend that that would make such a such an impression but that's the thing that i stayed with it wasn't even the mountain or the sea or whatever when i came into Cape, those filling stations and knowing that that was something that i understood that now i'm in a in a different country Boyhood and Transit, which you wrote for Chimarenga in 2013. Yeah. It's a piece in which you refer briefly to your move from Harare to Cape Town. And I think at this point I would like to ask if you don't mind reading a short excerpt for me and we can discuss it. Uh, so with... Uh, <laughs> hey, you're bringing back memories. Eh? <laughs> when I eventually settled in Cape Town in 2004... I went to Newlands Rugby Stadium for every home game the Stormers played, just to watch Tonderite Chavanga burst out into one of his trademark runs. I spent most of that year feeling like the lone survivor of a shipwreck, 
Zimbabwe was sinking and I'd left so many people behind. And I struggled to make friends in Cape Town. The trips to the stadium became a way of reconnecting with the past. I would sit alone in the terraces and whenever Tavanga did something spectacular, I would nudge the person next to me and say, you see the number 14? I went to school in Zim with that guy. Oh man, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. And you know, Tondirai Chavanga was everyone's hero. Like whenever he caught the ball, the things that he would do, it was like absolutely miraculous. Even the opposition would be like, we're watching a once in a generation talent. You know, David Foster Wallace has that essay on Roger Federer where he says, you know, everyone watching Roger Federer has what are called Federer moments. Like, these are things which are close to a religious experience. And I was just like, that for me was, was watching Tundra Chavanga. It could be, this could be it. Off he goes, off he goes, rewriting the record books. And then so he started playing for for the Stormers that first year when I came into came to South Africa and watching him in a stadium now filled with sort of 50,000 people it was just like it was extraordinary it was really 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 extraordinary and like every time you know even my mom would get involved in in the thing because it's like Tavanga even my cousin would get involved like it was like even friends from high school would be like let's go to the stadium look at him go jeez that's quick when you come into South Africa, rugby gets tied into this other politics, which is very violent. And the idea that this is not your sport, your sport is soccer and all of those things, you know, like it's all of these things that for me were not really natural because in Zim, a lot of people watch rugby. Part of that writing that piece was to say, look, we have this history. We have other engagement with the sport that's not necessarily tied to this history here. My family, or at least they were like big sports fans, actually. We're a newspaper reading family, but we're also like big sports fans. I mean, televised sports. And so the piece starts off when my uncle is in, is in hospital and he subsequently died in hospital and he was like a father figure to me. And I think Zim was playing Sri Lanka and at the cricket. It was a one-day thing. He wanted to tell him, oh, this is what happened at the cricket, even when he couldn't speak because it became, this is something that we... We genuinely shared so that's why that f for me that that sport is so central because it's like this is a thread a tangible thread i have between me right here and the people that are that are that are over there this piece it's about rugby mm. but it's about so many things as well it's about the yearning for home yeah. it's about belonging and of course such an important aspect of of moving yeah. as you did is the the place and the people you leave behind yeah. and i'm interested to know how do you think that reality of what you left behind affected you uh wow it, the things that you leave behind man i don't know if i can answer that adequately you know i don't know if i can answer that adequately because it you know our feelings change from day to day at the same time, I think one of the things that's that's really hard to reconcile is that, like I'd said, we'd grown up communally, but at some point when things started to uh, disintegrate, some of us had a chance to go to South Africa or to the UK, but other people didn't have that chance. So when I go back to Zim and I see people who, for 15 years, haven't really had any kind of stable jobs, which is a very long time, 
and the kind of struggles that they they're going through and how our lives are so different now when in reality they should have been much closer together so when we reconnect there's always that that gap as much as we want to kind of go back to where things were and you realize that you're part of this kind of group that have made it to the life raft because not everybody else is as fortunate to have a legit um, acceptance letter and all of those things so in a sense like there's it's called survivors guilt right there's a sense in which you know you're one of the lucky ones and everyone else is not so lucky but at the time because i was very young you know i'm like uh, i'm i'm really <laughs> i'm feeling very <laughs> very pleased and very chuffed to be here but when i look back at it i realize that i not many people uh, had that kind of ticket out and there's a shame that comes with with privilege as well right there's a there's a shame that comes with it because you're unable to kind of um unable to hide it or unable to disguise it and you you don't know how to live with that or I don't not many people know how to live with that without shame I think it's a very difficult thing to kind of do so then that comes uh, that comes between friendships okay so we're going from the okay my own story of haunting begins on 14 November at 10:35 a.m. H, a friend and colleague from Arare and a former civil society activist, asked what I thought would happen. We were in his office hunched over a computer screen. Like millions of other Zimbabweans resident outside of the country, we were following live updates of events back home on social media. Tanks and armored vehicles had sealed off roads leading to parliament and state house, and rumors swirling online said the president and his first lady had been placed under house arrest. Is this the end game you think? I started to say something. Um, but my voice sounded distant and familiar, as if it belonged to a stranger standing nearby. I looked out the window at the row of plane trees. Next, I had a sensation of whirling, of being knocked off balance, vertigo. In the days that followed, I had this sensation each time I tried to speak. I didn't have a grammar for what I was experiencing. I had been dislocated from the present and possessed with thoughts of the dead. Adonis Musati, 24, zigzagging across the street in Cape Town and asking a construction worker for money to buy a loaf of bread. He died on the pavement, his legs and arms outstretched, after eating half a loaf and taking a few sips of water. The only meal he'd had in a fortnight. Washington King, a Zimbabwean asylum seeker, according to the press, who died in a police cell in Woodstock, a neighborhood I lived in at the time. He hung himself with his tracksuit pants on the cell gate an hour after his arrest for an attempted housebreaking. We'll remember all of these deaths, all of this suffering. My own reaction to this moment caught me by surprise. I had long turned my back on Zimbabwe. I think to survive, to live one had to. Women forget the pain of childbirth, joy hard or rights. All of us forget the moment of impact of painful accidents or incidents in our lives. so we can go on and not be haunted by the memory of shock and pain when i immigrated to south africa in 2004 to study for a bachelor of arts degree in cape town aged 18 and full of rage i had felt then the need to forget or be consumed by rage outside of my family and a small circle of friends strangers now who appear periodically on my facebook feed i disavowed any claims zimbabwe had over me Sometimes you have to sever a limb to save the body.
the violence that you refer to in the pieces is, is also the violence of having your story told for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think funny. So there's a historian by the name of Terence Ranger uh, from Zimbabwe, and he came up with this concept. It's called patriotic history. And he was saying that ZANU-PF is engaged in this thing that's called patriotic history in which the centrality of the party becomes something that you see from the beginning of of national of national time right from the first struggle up until now this is the party that's the custodian of of the revolution that kind of writing of patriotic history is happening through different channels it's happening through tv it's happening through state newspaper this was the days before social media and you know it's happening through in the president's speeches and it's a we remember we had one channel and we have one state newspaper and for a brief time during the early 2000s there was an opposition paper called the daily news but the offices were bombed and they were subsequently Our kind of closed third Chimurenga, which is the third revolution to complete the track of the revolution that um, and you have this minister of information who's playing these jingles on the radio every 15 minutes about the party or what the party has done or the revolution that we're engaged with our land is our prosperity. It plays on the radio and on the TV every 15 minutes. And by the time you're closed in this information loop, man, like, it's difficult to tell you how crazy that can drive you. And because that information is being produced into the public domain, it's hard to contest it impossibly, right? Because you come here, you come to South Africa, and people admire Robert Mugabe as a nationalist leader or somebody who's taken the land. So there's always that narrative that precedes you. Like, you can't really just say, no, look, guys, this is the story. Let's set it straight. We're fully independent. We get our instructions not from London, not from Downing Street, directly from our people and from nobody else. Let's defend the people and defend ourselves and defend the party. Imondi from Tangrai down to the Tsotsis. The story that this machine is generating is the one that's going to win out in the end, you know, because they are so persistent and dedicated. And the violence of that man, I can laugh about it now, but man, that was just some sadistic stuff. Really, 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 uh, really sadistic. There's a line from an interview that you did with Kwanele Sosibo yeah. that speaks very much to what we've been talking about now. You said the regime has been invested in writing the contemporary moment and interpreting people's lives. I felt the extreme violence of that, even as I was growing up as a child, even when the opposition movement for democratic change was coming to the fore in the early 2000s. Everybody who supported the opposition was branded as a sellout. That violence has lived with me for a very long time. You know, uh, the moment I, I go back to, because I think in writing we're always going back to the same kind of same pool of stuff. The moment I go back to is the first elections, was it 2000 and 2002? The first elections where the MDC is, is now a force. spreads like a wildfire in the cities 
uh, I'm heavily invested in this moment as well. So is all our neighbors. Everyone is heavily invested in this. This is the first time that Zanu PF has faced a legitimate challenge from a party and the possibility that they'll be unseated. One change because Mugabe's government has betrayed the very revolution that he was, he was leading. It is his government that has amassed wealth to the small ruling elite that have destroyed the economy and the future of this country. That is and then people go and vote. They go and vote uh, and we're so sure that MDC is going to win. Like, so sure. They start counting the votes. Everybody's up. Like, you look into the streets, you see houses, the lights are on, you know. They start counting the votes, MDC is leading, and then at some point there's a reversal, like these ballooned out figures. At the end of the counting process, Zano PF has won, but you know that the election has been, has been rigged. It was so devastating, like to stay up all night for that was absolutely devastating, like sure. I didn't even know that I had so many feelings about that. But like, completely. And so ever since that moment, then the 2008 elections happened, same thing kind of happened. We will witness the last gasp of the dictatorship come the 29th of March. But for me, just going back into that, that was the moment I felt like extreme violence because an election sometimes like that, that's so monumental, is a reflection of the people's will, right? This is a reflection to say, this is what we want a country to go to become. And then that's where dictatorships are cruel because they say, actually, I see you, but we're going this way. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, we're going this way. So it can be a bit funny, but it was really, really, really devastating because things weren't as bad at that time. Things were really bad, but they weren't as bad at that time. And there was a window for a different future. And then that just kind of collapsed. It was a really beautiful time to have been there, you know, just in the lead up to that election because there was this palpable sense of hope in the in the air. And I think No Violet Bulawayo writes about this uh, in a novel, We Need New Names, that moment of that election at least. And then I remember somebody phoned the state radio, like those talk show, morning talk show, and it said, uh, good morning, I'd like to say, um, uh, good morning to my president, Mr. Changrai. And then the phone cuts immediately. It's like, yo, you can't say that, you know. <laughs> the phone cut immediately. <laughs> like, nope. Uh, and, you know, that, that time. But people are very resilient, you know. People are very resilient. But I can tell you now that nobody at that moment thought that the situation in 10 years' time is going to be like that, that, that bad or that, that, that drastic. People always said, why don't people revolt, you know? <laughs> um, but part of it is that what happens when the perpetrators of violence are also people who are in your community, influential figures in your community. What if the perpetrators of, uh, of state violence are people like your uncle or people like your brother-in-law? What happens in a situation like that? You sit together at family gatherings or you sit together at communal gatherings and you laugh with each other, but you know what these people are doing up at night are violent things that is a very complicated thing i've never been able to kind of tell that story i've never been able to really articulate it i remember this one guy used to teach us the you know karate martial arts but he's high up in the security chain and 
he had come to our house one evening. I think they were, they were pretty wasted. And he came and he sat in the lounge, was friends with a, um, an in-law of mine. And they'd come that evening. And his gun fell out of his back pocket uh, in the lounge. And then he kind of picked it up and it said, no, sorry. And then put it back in its holster and, and everything like that. And that's that kind of slippage. And we know that this is what's going on, but we can't really talk about it. There's no space. There's no discursive space. There's no language for it. Going back again to the, to the piece, which is... I, I, I don't know, I think it's very difficult. I think, I don't know how activists in the apartheid days did this, you know, to maintain like your, like a state of vigilance, a continual agitation for, for change, for a situation that feels like it's not going to change. And for me, like I felt that kind of exhaustion as I was, I was done with, uh, with Zimbabwe, like completely, uh, completely done with it, you know, because I felt like, this thing is going to eat up my whole entire life. So there's a story that the Nigerian writer Chris Abani, you know, as a young boy, when they're slaughtering a goat, as the young person, you hold the mouth at the, you hold the mouth so that the goat doesn't scream as they're cutting the throat. And he had that task as a six-year-old, and then the goat screamed, and uh, he was so traumatized by that experience, you know. And then his uncle said to him, "Look." You can't cry every time this happens because you would never survive. It's okay to know that it hurts. And for me, that seems like a, a reasonable way of living, you know. And because just to put it back into context, when we left for university coming to South Africa, it was meant to be like a temporary sojourn. Like it didn't seem as if things would remain bad that time. And you think, you know, in a few years after graduation, I'll come back and we'll live this, uh, we'll continue again from where we left off. But then four years becomes eight years, becomes 12 years, becomes, uh, and so on. And uh, it's just so devastating for me to this time to think about the kinds of, the irrationality of a dictatorship, the actual cruelty of it, like it's beyond me. It's really totally, totally, totally beyond me. So many great, great, great minds, so many great athletes, so many great uh, artists. They just didn't have the chance for, for anything, for, uh, yeah, to fulfill their potentials. So there's that, that loss and also that anger as well. And I don't even want to speak about it in public because I feel like I go into a rage or I become irrational. Oh, you meet people who support the dictatorship. So I was like, the best way to live it's the kind of disengaged. It's enough to acknowledge that it's unjust and sometimes you can write a piece about it, sometimes you can speak to people to connect with people, send money home, do those things, but I, I don't engage as like as, as fiercely as as before. But I realize that also that kind of disengagement as well has an ethical implication, you know, because uh, you're allowing people to suffer on their own because you think this is a better way to live, but it comes at a cost, you know, it comes at a, at a cost. Can we talk briefly about Cape Town? Um, because you explore the extent to which apartheid is embedded in the geography of the city and the life of the city in a lot of your writing. And I'm thinking specifically of your essay, Strangers. I also again want to ask you to read a, a short excerpt. 
When I think of Cape Town, I don't think of the Indian or Atlantic Ocean or Table Mountain. I think of borders, boundaries, dividing lines which mark territory. And I think of personhood. And the harder, more devastating question, as novelist Madeleine Tien says, of who here is allowed to be a person. Yeah, no, <laughs> I had to take a take a deep breath, take a really deep breath, uh, because I think it's it's so embedded here. It really is is so 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 embedded here. How, where where does one begin when it comes to think about? Uh, sure, I guess one of the things about Cape Town that's always you know like. You might think you're having a good time in the company of people or people you've known. It can be whatever setting, but somebody will say something that's small and that is can be quite devastating. My idea of Cape Town, I have to speak of it in two phases. The experience of being at university for me was really was really amazing actually because I had friends from different parts of the world and the country had a different feel then, or at least I felt like it had a different feel then. So I felt like the possibility of South Africa was in those friendships for me that I had. Like we were living in this kind of dream city. But when I started working, I saw how that promise really was kind of vanished after that moment. I started working at an advertising agency and it was like a very divided uh, workspace and our engagements with each other, man, like it was so difficult. You're so aware that you're a black person first before you become anything else, you know. An incident that I can remember is that um, the advertising agency had a bar downstairs and all of the black guys went to the taxi because none of us had cars. Being paid peanuts, why are they so small? We used to ask. But anyway, uh, all of us, so on Friday when the bar opened, we had to leave at a certain time to be at the taxi rank to go to our respective places. And then there was this one person, a colleague, she couldn't find her iPhone and we had taken the elevator and she came running down the stairs. It's just like, sorry guys, but can I search your pockets and your bags? I can't find my, can't find my phone. But bear in mind, we're all like 22, 23 at this kind of stage. I searches everything and goes back to the bar and then you can go. And then on Monday when you come back, she found the phone, but doesn't say anything, right? But that, it tears away all of those kinds of, kinds of illusions. And yeah, because of those differences people have grown up with, those like economic differences which translate to geographic distance which translates to cultural difference where you don't see other people i think that's part of what living in cape town is about like you don't see other people you have this kind of blindness it's like you have these cities that are living side by side but the people of one city can't see the people that exist in the other city so i remember reading this many years ago it was a book on trauma and he had said that Societies that cannot expand the circle of the we limit their ability to act morally. So whenever you say we, who is included in that? And I'd forgotten that. I think that's where the thing about, uh, I guess, for me, the difficulty of Cape Town, sometimes the we people speak about is quite narrow. So how does that, how do you expand that? That when you say your people, it includes a wide variety of people. It includes so many other people.
the final lines of Boyard and Transit are spoken by your mother after your uncle has passed away and she looks over his body and says, we'll take you home, we'll take you home. Does Hatfield still sit in your mind as home? Um, Yeah, I think that particular place will always be home for me in the sense that I think a country is too big a thing to love. I think it's too big a thing to call home. Um, but a neighborhood is something else, you know, a neighborhood somehow it's because I think love needs parameters, right? So I I know I'd always feel at home in Hatfield. I don't know if I always feel at home in, in Harare or I feel at home in Zimbabwe at large, but but Hatfield in particular, even the the area, the street that I grew up in. Uh I guess also because there are people in the there are people in the ground who are who are from that house or have been in that house who are connected to me. There's so much of my life that's entangled in that space. So much of the lives of the people that I'm closest to is entangled in that space. And of course, my my gran is still there. So that's that will that will always be home for me. I read in an interview that you said writing is not something that comes easily to me, which is quite a, a remarkable thing to read, you having said, because there seems such a beautiful and natural flow to your writing. So so what is it that you mean that, that doesn't come easily to you? Yeah, I think uh, just always a sense, uh, a sense of doubt is a thing that, uh, that kind of plagues me. So it, it really, I think from whatever reason it is, but I've whatever circumstances I've kind of grown up in or uh, have a lack of or self-esteem that I'm, I've only, I recognize this in myself. And these self-esteem issues translate to wanting to be perfect. And I remember someone saying that perfection is a mathematical concept. It's not a human concept. Because the thing that we want from the work that we do is actually just, just growth, you know, just to have the courage to actually finish something and to send it out. And if they say they don't like it, it's fine. You know, it's okay. You know, you can't just be hitting home runs all the time. And so gradually I'm learning to let myself do that, just learning to, and also with short stories or any kind of writing, it's a body thing. There comes a moment when you're okay to let this thing go and then I think that's when you know you're, you're at the end. It's not necessarily perfect or whatever, but there's still something rankling inside the chest, you know, it's not yet finished, it needs to be tweaked or whatever. And then there's a point where it becomes easy to let the thing go and it's no longer when it's no longer yours and then you can move on to something else and for me that's a that's a that's a body thing knowing that you've been listening to the final installment of season one of the ICA podcast a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, produced and edited by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode features the tracks Further Discovery, Learning from Kids, and Emphatic Solace by Blair Moon. And from Blue Dot Sessions, an accumulation Helma Sprack, Emmett Sprack, Helpfer, Exquisite Motion, Floor VL, Coved, and Pull Beyond Pool. If this is the first episode of the ICA podcast that you're listening to, 
go back and listen to the eight other interviews with artists and curators that make up season one of the podcast. And if you've been with us all along and like what you've heard, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or even better, share the series with a friend. We'll be back with more artists and more performances in season two a little later in the year. And until then, keep safe, and thanks so much for listening.